Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. And we ask again for your spirit, your presence, your love in our hearts, wisdom, discernment, that we can study and grow in your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number four in the quarterly, First and Second Thessalonians, and the title this week is Joyous and Thankful. And if someone would read for us the memory verse this week, the memory text, which is on First Thessalonians 2 and 3. First Thessalonians 1, 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. That was read very nicely. I could hear that so good. So thank you. And uh, that was the um, English Standard Version. And this is of the good news. And it's a, it says the same thing. But notice how it says it slightly differently and see if it just feels a little different to you. It says, we always thank God for you, for you all, always mention you in our prayers. For, for we remember before our God and Father how you put your faith into practice, how your love made you work so hard, and how your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ is firm. The same thing, just says it slightly differently. Um, as we think about that uh, text, move over to Sunday, because Sunday wants us to explore that text. And in reference to the memory text, the lesson asks this question. For what things are Paul, Silas, and Timothy giving thanks? What do these things mean in practical sense? That is, how would they be manifested in the daily life? So look at what they're being thankful for, and then these questions. What do they mean in a practical sense? They put their faith into action. They put their faith into action. What does it mean in a practical sense? Um, To me, the thing that went through my mind is, would it not mean that these people have accepted God's remedy to their sin condition. And think about it this way. If you were parents and your children were all infected with some terminal disease, and you brought them a remedy, and when you checked back on them, you noticed that the fever was down, the bleeding had stopped, the appetite had improved, their color was better, they were getting up and playing games again, they were active and moving around, would you not rejoice at all these things you're seeing? Because wouldn't all these things be indication that they're getting well? That's That's what I see when I read this text. He's rejoicing at their change in in behavior because something's changing in them. It's indication of a remedy and application. Yes? When I heard this verse, I thought, wow, you know, how many of us, when we pray, give God thanks for the people who have been faithful in our life, the people who have been a good witness to us, the people who have been faithful and steadfast and who who have... given us hope in the Lord. You know, I mean, I know the Bible says we should give thanks in everything. But to just, I mean, I just, I just don't. I just dawned on me that I don't give thanks often enough for the, the people in my life that have helped me to love the Lord as much as I do. You know, I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think that thanks of prayer that we sh- probably don't do enough of, would be what we would hear if we heard the Thessalonians giving a thanks of prayer. They'd be thanking them for Paul. Paul, thank you, Lord, for Paul and Timothy and Silas, who've given us such a great witness, who've brought us the gospel, helped us know you. But we're now reading it in reverse, where Paul and Silas and Timothy are giving thanks for the transformationals who've heard the word. And they're, and, 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 and they're encouraged as they see the transforming impact of the gospel in the lives of these people who prior didn't know it. 
So I think it goes both ways. We give thanks for those who've encouraged us, and we give thanks when we've been able to share it with someone else and see their life change. That's exciting too, isn't it? Yeah. Monday's lesson, jump over to Monday. It says, uh, the lesson talks about being chosen, being elected, and if we have time, we're going to come back to that idea later in, the, later in the lesson to talk about what it means to be chosen or elected. But I want to, with that idea in mind, read the second paragraph and talk about it. It says, some Christians have taken the idea of being chosen to an extreme. They want to move <clears throat> the believer away from any focus on lifestyle and behavior. Instead, they teach that our salvation depends on God's choice rather than our own. Such a teaching can also lead to the idea that God's grace is only for a few and that once saved, a person cannot choose to be lost. Anything strike you in that paragraph? Yes, that's it. That, that, that's exactly, she had heard it, heard it that as I did. It was like, um, you notice the sentence, the second sentence, it says, they want to move the believer away from focus on lifestyle and behavior rather than they want to move the believer away from a transformation of heart or transformation of character. When it comes to salvation, what's the issue? Yeah, so, the, but the lessons asked, uh, put, pointed us in the, in the direction of lifestyle and behavior, so I, I've got some questions about that. Is our salvation based on our lifestyle and behavior? So let me throw some out there. If you say no, if you say yes, didn't matter what, you, Russell. Are they related? I mean, <clears throat> our lifestyle can affect our minds and bodies, which can affect our ability to perceive and receive the Holy Spirit, and you can't disconnect them. They're linked. They are linked, but let's, let's see if we can explore it. I'm going to throw some out there, and you think salvation. <clears throat> Is salvation impacted by, I'm going to throw lifestyle and behavior things out there, and you just, we'll go down some list of them. Eating cheese. Eating meat. Refusing to exercise. Drinking coffee or tea. Getting tattoos. Wearing jewelry. Watching non-Christian TV programming. Gossiping. Smoking cigarettes. Drinking alcohol. Owning a store or restaurant that sells alcohol. But you don't drink it. Working on Sabbath. Subtext. Nurse. ER doctor. Paramedic. Fire department. Police. Coast Guard. Cook at a restaurant. Cook at the Southern Adventist University cafeteria. Banker, auto mechanic, welder, plumber, electrician. Smoking marijuana with a prescription in California. (laughs) Premarital sex. Viewing pornography. Promoting and producing pornography. Visiting prostitutes as a single person in a state where it's legal. Does any of these lifestyle and behavior choices impact our salvation? I heard a note. Yeah, over here is the hand, first hand. I was the thief on the cross, he never had time to put any of these things into practice, but he was uh, saved, you know, in, in a matter of uh, a few moments. So the thief on the cross, if he would have come down from the cross and gone on to live on this earth, would he have continued to be a thief? Would his behavior and lifestyle have changed? Okay. 
so behavior and lifestyle doesn't prevent us from accepting Christ, but once we accept Christ, is there some connection? Over here. Yes, when we, just, when we say impact our salvation, that could mean, does it, does it help God to take us and save us or not? Or it could mean, are we placing ourselves where we can become more in harmony with God, yes or no? So, so as far as the, the supplying of salvation, no, it doesn't impact that at all. The salvation is there for us if we want it. But as far as placing ourselves in situations where our soul can feed and become like Jesus, yes, it impacts that. Okay. Uh, over here, right here. Well, if, we, if we look at salvation as healing, and we continue in behaviors that are uh, uh, in the way, getting in the way of that healing, then I think those could come in the way of our salvation if we continue in those behaviors. I guess you would have to define salvation. Does salvation mean being able to live forever, or does it mean being saved from the condition that we're in? And if the condition that we're in is reflected by our lifestyle and behavior, what are we being saved from? Salvation, uh, anybody want to throw out a definition? I can throw one out. It means to be reconciled to God and restored to unity with Him to live eternally. Okay, so... With Him. Certain things that are going to keep us from that... Yeah, and that's the question. Eating cheese, keep us from that? Yes, Wendell. Uh, My comment uh, was was very similar to his as far as the, the health issues. I think it's very similar. So, so do the health issues, not just the phys- do the physical health issues impact the spiritual health issues? Do spiritual health issues impact physical health issues? Yeah. As, as I say, as, as also thinking about the Olympics, um, there's a lot of talk of this about the London Olympics and the way the Olympians are preparing themselves for this event. It's not just an event; it's a lifestyle, and it's a life. Yeah. And if you're truly preparing for a life, you would not choose to do things that would make you less healthy, less enjoyable, and um, would detract from your life. How many Olympic athletes do you think are smokers? Maybe some of the gun guys, the target guys that shoot guns, maybe. And that's all I do, you know? Maybe, I don't know, archery maybe? maybe but maybe not. I don't know. I, I don't really know. I don't have a statistic on it. But I suspect it's pretty low of anybody. Wouldn't you think? I understand a lot of the endurance athletes are actually vegan. A lot of the endurance athletes. Because they get better endurance out of their body if they don't put a lot of animal products in. Yes? Um, I suppose that we are, we are called from darkness into God's marvelous light. So it'd be easier, easy for me, at my stage of light that I am, to look down on somebody else who does some of those things that you read that I don't do and that don't bother me and I don't mind not doing them, to look down on somebody else who does them and who, who can accept Jesus Christ as much as I am able to as Savior. And, and at the point that we are at in becoming like Christ is different for everybody. So it's not okay for me to go start doing something that I consider darkness you know, because it's okay with God if I do that. It's not okay for me to go back into darkness. It's just I should rejoice in the light that God is leading me in. Yeah, as we look at other people who are maybe doing some of these behaviors, do how many of you look at a smoker 
and go, yeah, it's just not fair. They get to smoke. <laughs> when I became a Christian, I had to give it up or I can't do it. It's just not right. Just keeping me from all the good stuff. I mean, when you look at a smoker, how many of you actually are jealous that they're smoking? Or do you actually look at them and go, how sad? How sad? Now, wouldn't that be true for every violation of God's law? If you know somebody who visits prostitutes, you go, man, they're getting a deal. Or you're going, how sad? How sad? Do you look down at them and, 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 and with anger and judgmentalism? Do you have compassion knowing that the behaviors that violate God's principles are destructive to the person doing them? Russell. Doesn't Paul tell us all things are acceptable, but not all things are beneficial? That's what he says. Kind of along the same, same lines. So when we look at lifestyle choices regarding salvation, are there some lifestyle choices that are actually inconsequential? They don't make a difference at all. Are, are there some lifestyle choices that make no difference? Like whether you, you know, decide to wear only uh, drab clothing or whether you wear bright col- colors. Completely inconsequential. Um, how about, are there some, though, that are actually clearly destructive? And then there are some that are actually healing and restorative. Are there some choices that way, too? Yes. So, and do circumstances ever matter? Does the situation ever matter? Can, can something be harmful in one situation and be healing in another situation? Redemptive, restorative. Yes. Um, I heard the comment from a neighbor that, you know, when we discussed this, that if there is a homosexual, a practicing homosexual, he will, he, she will not get into heaven. That's, that's too much. Would you comment on that? Uh, you've heard a neighbor say that? Yeah, I think that the, what comes to my mind immediately is judge not that you be not judged. For the same measure you use to judge others will be judged against you. Um, what's, what's being revealed by the person's comment is the, the nature of their own heart, the filter system they use to evaluate the world around them. The person who says this about a homosexual is not telling us anything about the homosexual. It's telling about themselves and the, and the lack of grace that they're having. Because we don't actually know the heart of a homosexual. We also don't know the biology of a homosexual. There's at least 20 different um, biological intersexed um, um, issues that can affect someone's sexuality. For instance, Swire syndrome or um, um, uh, testicular feminization are both disorders in which the person has uh, XY chromosome, but they're born as a baby girl and raised as a female, even though they're genetically male. Um, Who's going to judge? How can you judge that person? Who sinned that this person was born blind? Neither. Who sinned that this person was born genetically chromosomally male, but were phenotypically female and raised as a girl? Who sinned? It's not our place to judge these things. So I will tell you, there will be people who have lived lives as homosexuals in heaven. There will be people who live lives as heterosexuals who don't make it to heaven. There will be people who live lives as homosexuals who won't make it to heaven because of that sin. That sin will be the sin that keeps them out. No other. It really depends on the heart, the issue, the circumstance, and it's not our place to judge them. And I can, I, I, does that make sense to you? Yeah. Does anybody disagree with that? And it's okay to disagree in here because I'm not God and I'm not sitting in judgment. But as I look at these things, this is, there's a wide variety. Since the fall of man, when we look at sexuality issues, God created Adam and Eve in Eden perfect. Since the fall of man, 
humankind has been, is defective in multiple ways. Some of the defects are actually sin. Like uh, when we premeditate and murder somebody, that's a sin. Some defects we have are a product of sin. A person born sterile. That is a consequence of sin. God did not design Adam and Eve sterile. He designed them to be reproductive, to reproduce, to be fertile. But a baby born sterile, that's a consequence of sin. But being sterile is not sin itself. So you're not sinning because you're sterile. You follow what I'm saying here? Just like being blind. Okay? Some people were born biologically, uh, her, um, if you've heard of a hermaphrodite, okay? where they have both sexual organs, male and female. Okay? We aren't in a position to judge. That's my position. And the Christian position toward a homosexual is the same position Christ t- took towards a woman caught in adultery. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go live a better life. Go live the life that Christ would have you live. It's not our position to judge. That's my view on that. Um, yes? Well, I think one of the things to remember when you ask that question, who, who sinned that this man was born blind? In some respects, I understand the answer, neither. But I also think it's important to remember that we all did. Because when the Bible talks into the third and fourth generations, we don't understand how interconnected we are. And sometimes a person's sin is related to relationships with other people even with homosexuality or, or whatever, we can cause those genetic deformities. We can have an impact on that. So in a sense, when we look at somebody and judge them, we're responsible. Yeah, well, she, you bring up a good point, and that is the impact of uh, epigenetic changes. These are the, the instructions that sit above the genome telling how the genes are to be expressed, and those epigenetic changes do pass down three and four generations. Uh, somebody who uh, smokes cigarettes, for instance, before the age of 11 will actually alter their Y chromosome expression so that their grand grandsons will die at a younger age than if they hadn't smoked before the age of 11, um, have hypercholesterolemia and, and heart disease that they wouldn't have otherwise have. Um, a woman who drinks alcohol, even one glass a week of wine while pregnant, will have children who have higher delinquency rates, higher uh, behavior problems, higher emotional and psychological problems if she hadn't drunk, drunk anything at all. So yes, we can alter the, uh, the gene expression uh, going on. And I read one study that suggested because of the estrogenizing effect of of, of soy, that uh, vegetarians who eat lots of soy while pregnant estrogenize the brain of their male babies, increasing the risk of homosexuality. So maybe the Adventist vegetarian women are actually increasing the rates of homosexuality in their children. This is one study. So, um, yes? Because our, our knowledge is so finite, uh, I think all of us as Christians are living in sin. We just don't know what sins we're committing. Our knowledge is so small. Um, that goes back to what is sin then, and that goes back to what is the standard for righteousness. And what is the standard for righteousness we talk about in here all the time, guys? God's law of love, which is the principle of beneficence, which is the design template upon which the universe is built to run. And sin then is lawlessness. It's the principle of being outside the law of love. It's the principle of choosing selfishness, exploitation over, uh, over selflessness and love. And we are born in a condition, so an HIV-infected man, HIV-infected woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? 
Nothing. But the baby still has a terminal condition, if not remedied, that will kill it. We, since Adam and Eve sinned, we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity, born with a condition without remedy that is actually self-destructive, self-terminating. The, 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 no one has to come in and, 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 and kill somebody with AIDS. If, if they're not treated, if they don't get remedy, that condition kills them. Nobody has to come in and kill a sinner. Sin kills the sinner unless it's remedied. And Christ came in order to remedy mankind to save us from the condition in which we're born in. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, an illustration is that uh, many Christians that don't know what we know, they smoke and drink. And we consider that a sin, but we're told that God winks at our ignorance. And, and um, you know, it's the motive of the heart. That's exactly right. Ultimately, it's the motive of the heart. And as we get greater and greater light, we move into the light to live more and more in harmony with God's design. And it's really the heart issue. Once the heart is converted, um, then the rest of the behavior starts changing. But it's, but it's gradual. Yes, we've got to move on. This is we've got to move several other big topics to talk about in the lesson today. Okay, any other last comment on that? Yeah, right here, last comment on that. We were talking about the thief on the cross. And I think that's important to remember that, thank God he had time to get it right before he died. And he could have been a homosexual. Who knows? I mean, who knows what he was? But who knows that we won't go out of here and get hit by a truck. You need to always think of the fact that you may or may not have time at the end to change your life or to give it to God. And that you have to be ready at any time. All right, let's jump to Wednesday's lesson. And it's talking about 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, which tells us that we are, we are to be you know, commended them, actually, for being imitators of Paul. And um, the lesson rightly points out that we, our true model is Christ, who's the ultimate model, but sometimes we can benefit from a human role model. Now, as I looked at that, what concerns, if any, should we have with human role models? What about a role model of an apostle or a prophet, like they were role modeling after Paul? Should we allow them to model behavior for us and follow them without thinking, or should we think through and even disagree with them if we don't like the way they're modeling things? For instance, Peter modeled that we should disassociate ourselves from Gentiles. He was modeling behavior for us. And... Until Paul came and confronted him, the church was following his lead. They were modeling themselves after Peter. Should we model ourselves, how about after a prophet? Remember the, the, the old prophet came to the young prophet and told him he should come home. Eat with him, 1 Kings 13, and of course the Bible says he was lying to him. Made too many hands yet, not, not quite to the point yet. Should we follow the example of the, those inspired by God or should we think for ourselves. Last week, we read in this class the following quotation from Ellen White out of Gospel Workers, page 387. And I'm going to ask you the question, should the church have followed her or should the church have told her she was wrong? Every, indiv every individual exerts an influence in society. In our favored land, every voter has some voice in determining what laws shall control the nation. Should not the influence and that vote be cast on the side of temperance and virtue? The advocates of temperance fail to do their whole duty unless they exert their influence by precept and example, by voice and pen and vote in favor of prohibition and total abstinence.
We need not expect that God will work a miracle to bring about this reform and thus remove the necessity for our exertion. We ourselves must grapple with this giant foe, our motto, no compromise, no cessation of our effort till victory is gained. Was she right? Or should we have spoken to her like Paul did to Peter? What method was she advocating? Present the truth in love, leave people free, convert hearts, or use the government to coerce people into a religious practice that we advocate that others don't? Which, which method is being used? How different is this than if voters get together and vote for a day of worship that we must worship on? Was there a difference? Is there a difference? Go ahead. Well, College Dale used, obviously, the example of allowing the uh, liquor-by-the-drink vote here, and I think that was appropriate. Not that I'm happy that the outcome was what it was, but that was appropriate. Um, yes, Wendell. Prohibition passed in this country. That was my, thank you, Russell. How did that work out? No, I'm serious. How did it work out for this country? Did it result in a greater, a, a greater peace and benevolence in society? No. Was there actually more violence, more crime? The syndicate, uh, the, you know, the whole mafia thing was, was funded by this whole thing. Um, organized crime was formed because of it. Violence, rebellion, why? What happens when you take away liberty? It's one of God's laws. When you via, take away liberty, it always incites rebellion. Always incites rebellion. Now look at how instead what we've done with cigarette smoking in this country. How have we handled that? Primarily education taxation. People are still free to get it, but they have to pay a higher price for it because we want to tax it. But we also educate, educate, educate. And what's happened to cigarette smoking in this country in the last 35 years? Down, 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 down. Yes, and we also have restricted advertising to youth because we want to protect the youth when they're impressionable from being uh, manipulated into a destructive behavior before their prefrontal cortex is developed enough to make an intelligent choice. We wouldn't let the youth make a decision on um, whether you know any major financial investment or anything else. They should make a decision on something that will, will dict them for the rest of their life. So I, I don't have a problem with that either. Yes? We were talking about when Paul says, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Was he talking about imitating his behavior or imitating his, his thought process? You know, or all of it. Imitate how he um, approaches life, how he had a transformation of heart, how he loves and trusts God, how he, how he wants to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, um, you know, how he lives his, I, I, I think it all. I would have suggested it all. Doesn't he say in another place, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Yes, yes. Russell. I don't think Christ had a transformation of heart. Who did? Christ. Did I say Christ or Paul? I thought you were talking about Christ. No, Paul. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about Paul. Yes. Was the government's motive on prohibition to protect the public? Is that their motivation? That it just backfired? Uh, I, well, sir, th- those who advocated for this really saw the destruction and devastation of alcohol. By the way, anything I've said in here so far, have I said anything in here that's pro-alcohol? We're not promoting alcohol. Alcohol is horrible. I see it in my practice all the time. I deal with the addicts, uh, alcoholics. It destroys individuals. It destroys families. I think they saw the terrible devastation that alcohol caused in individuals and families, and they wanted to protect the public. I believe that's true. I don't, I don't dispute that, and I don't dispute that their findings about the devastation of alcohol are not correct. I think that's right. But don't some religions use alcohol in their services? 
Should we deny them that right? Hmm. Yes. When the Israelites and all the governmental straight from God prohibitions over them, was that just God's attempt to demonstrate that you can't legislate morality? Well, you know, in the Israelites, and if you were in Deuteronomy chapter 14, they're actually instructed to take their tithe money, buy and ferment a drink, and come and rejoice before the Lord. But in general, the overarching... We're not going to talk about that? <laughs> you, you answer my question first. Well, I'm just wondering where that principle was on the prohibition thing. Deuteronomy said, buy tithe and use your tithe, buy strong drink, and come rejoice for the Lord. Deuteronomy 14. What was going on? What was the context? What was the situation? What were the people doing anyway? By the way, could you... In... in, in what was it, 3,000, 4,000? Was it 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago? I think it was about the 3,000, 3,500 years ago, about the time of David, something like that. If you had a, a vineyard and you decided to save some of your wine for the off-season, um, who's going to refrigerate it for you? Where are you going to refrigerate that stuff? What's the chances it won't ferment? In that, in that climate, in that culture, with the science that they had, what's the chances that the wine kept for any period of time would not ferment? This is what you're reading about in the wedding of Cana, that the best wine came out last because it was the unfermented sweet wine. Wow, this is fresh. This is sweet. They put the fermented stuff out first. The stuff that Christ made, fresh and sweet. It's like, wow, this is awesome. We have this. How'd you get this in the off-season? So one of the reasons why is potentially because there was no other really option. It wasn't they go down and buy Welch's grape juice. That was, the, that was, their, that was the, what they had. And what was God doing in the Old Testament with all the laws and restrictions? Thank you. As parents, do you, parents put rules on their four-year-olds, their five-year-olds, their six-year-olds. Lots of restrictions that... When they're 25, if you tried to do it, it would be, well, it would be pathetic. Wouldn't it be? Yes. The question is, how do we know where people are today as far as what laws and legislation we enact today? How do you determine that? Um, as a government or as a church? As a government. Well, that's not our, that's not our, our role. Well, I'm not here. I'm not here to talk civic government. I'm here to talk the role of the church. Wait, was Ellen White talking about the role of the church, or was she? Yeah, she was talking about the church people going out and affecting government. Well, do we go out and affect government, though? Should we? Well, that's my question. If Christ is our role model, will we? If the apostles are our role model, did they go out and try to get better senators in Rome, better governors in Palestine? We are, our citizenship is in the United States. Our citizenship is in heaven. Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight. Now, is physical fighting the only type of fighting followers can do on planet earth? Or is there political fighting? And I think one of the grand deceptions of Satan 
is to divert the energies of the church from converting and healing the hearts of men to political fights. And if we convert hearts to love God and love his methods and love his principles, you don't have to pass legislation. We only pass legislation because hearts are unconverted and rebellious. And this is one of Satan's grand tricks because he wants us to try to control hearts with legislation because he knows we do that, we'll never convert them. And it's only by bringing the gospel, leaving people free. Paul says in Romans 14, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. When we present the truth in love, then people's hearts are converted. They, they don't want to live this way anymore. It's miserable. It's painful. It's disgusting. I know the, the, the addicts that I deal with, they struggle to be free, but only rarely, and I have had rarely, do I have one that, that really doesn't want to be free. And I've had a few. They really don't want it. They know it's killing them. And they don't care because they like it more than anything in the world and they're going to keep doing it no matter what. But that's the rare addict or alcoholic. The vast majority want to be free. They just don't know how to get free. I would tell you there are sinners like that too. People that are self-indulgent, um, self-centered, that, that really just like it, like the power they wield over others, like how they can abuse other people if they're in that position, a despot, a dictator, and they don't want to give it up. But most people, most of us, our conscience convicts us when we fall short. We don't like the guilt. We don't like the shame. We don't like the, the shortcoming. We want to be free from the, from the corruption of our own nature, don't we? Yes. yes, we long to be free. The purpose of the church is to lead people to the message of freedom. And I'm going to tell you, you can't free people's heart by legislation. Not by might nor by power. But by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. The spirit is the spirit of truth and love. So yes, we should absolutely go toward temperance. Absolutely. We should promote that message strongly. But should we seek to control how other people live? Let's go ahead and outlaw alcohol. Then let's outlaw all tobacco. Let's put some legislation in that requires that fast food restaurants not serve any trans fats and nothing over, no meals over 400 calories. Because we know, I mean, look, what, 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 these trans fats, these fast foods, um, what happens when you eat a big fatty Big Mac and a, and a milkshake at once? You know what happens? Fermentation happens in your stomach. You get a form of intoxication. Well, let's, let's outlaw that. Let's outlaw it. Hot ones, hot ones with a milkshake. You can get a buzz, get a sugar rush, get a buzz, get a little intoxication. It actually causes some fermentation in the gut. Let's outlaw it. Hot ones outlawed. Do you see a problem? We start going, are you changing hearts when we do this? But can we educate people the damage they're doing and lead them to make free will choices not to want to live that way anymore? Don't think I'm in any way advocating a free and loose lifestyle. A destructive. I'm not advocating that at all. Which is actually a more serious consequence. You will be fined $500 if you drink a glass of wine because it's illegal, or you're damaging your liver and brain cells if you drink. Which is really the bigger problem? Damaging your body. That's the much bigger problem. When you violate God's laws, it's always destructive to the person. Yes? Are you advocating not voting? Um, That, I'm going to say straight up, is Romans 14. Every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. I would never tell another person whether they should or should not vote. That's not up to me. I think that I think a person's conscience could be quite clear and quite in harmony with God and, and with a clear conscience vote. I also think that a person's conscience could be quite clear and in harmony with God and not vote. 
How many of us would judge, for instance, the Amish and the way they live their life, not participating in the voting process and the, and the, and, and the way the government system works? Are we going to judge them? You remember, the, you remember the story of the shooting of the girls up there? Marion and Barbie Fisher? And when the, when the gunman was going to shoot them, Marion, 13, stands up and says, shoot me and let the other ones go. And as soon as she hits the ground dead, her sister stands up, 11 years old, shoot me next, let the other ones go. Greater love is no man than to give his life. Are we going to judge them because they don't want to vote? We see that kind of love in action? No, I think that's every person fully persuaded in their own mind. If you want to vote, vote. That's up to you. Somebody else doesn't want to vote. Praise God. Let them make their own mind up, right? That's the principle of, of godliness that we leave other people free. Love can't exist in an atmosphere without freedom. As soon as I start controlling or trying to dictate to you guys, I mean, from now on, you guys don't come here unless you are all wearing black shoes. It's a rule. I'm going to put in five. Black shoes are required. You're going to go, what? Some of you aren't going to ever come back if I did that. And how simple, how, how, uh, how oppressive would it be to wear black shoes? But, it, but the principle of, of violating your freedom to let you make up your own mind on what shoes you want to wear. Um, I saw a hand somewhere. All right, Thursday's lesson. Let's just jump to Thursday's lesson. Oh, no, wait, still another thing in, in, when, in uh, what, what, Tuesday, Wednesday's lesson. It's, it talks about the lesson in the fourth paragraph states, God's word can always be trusted. While that is absolutely true, does that mean how people understand, interpret, and teach God's word can always be trusted? Can the trustworthy word of God be misunderstood? Is it easy or hard to misunderstand God's word? Well, I was thinking about this, and I'm going to tell you, uh, you, you guys, tell me, tell me if, if you agree or disagree with me, but the, an idea went in my mind, and it goes, it depends on the lens that you're using to look at God's word. If you look at God's word through the lens of God's, God's laws imposed, like an imperial Roman uh, emperor, he imposes laws upon his creatures. He must therefore punish. God is severe. He, has, he must inflict pain and, and torture upon those who rebel against him. Christ died to appease this angry, wrathful God. If you look at the scriptures through that lens, I think it's very hard to understand it. You misunderstand it terribly. If you look at the scripture, however, through the lens of God's law as the law of love, the design protocol which life is built, through the lens in the life of Jesus Christ, who is the touchstone that we checked our realities with, that revealed selfless love perfectly, then I think God's word becomes easy to understand. What do you all think? It depends on the lens. And the reason? Well, there's a lot of different lenses being used out there. A lot of different lenses, a lot of presuppositions, a lot of assumptions that people come to Scripture with that impact how they understand it. Thursday's lesson. By the way, do you think anyone would have sinned 100 and some years ago in, if, they would have, if they would have disagreed with Ellen White and said we should leave people free? Would that have been a sin to disagree with the, the inspired messenger? No. I, I respect you. And by the way, if somebody makes a mistake, let's, let's, let's clarify this. Peter clearly was wrong about the Gentiles. Everybody agree? Does that mean Peter was no longer God's messenger? His heart wasn't right with God? He wasn't useful in God's cause? We should just throw him to the side and ignore everything else he says? Not at all. Not at all. 
He was still the apostle. He was still used by God. He still had a message to teach. We should still listen to him and follow his witness. But we should redo it through the lens of thinking for yourself, understanding God's nature, character, methods, principles for yourself, because he's still human. And by the way, if you've ever read Ellen White, she says herself she is not God. She is not to be followed blindly. That everything she's ever said or written should be checked with the word of God. The word of God is our standard, not her. Am I right or wrong here? Yeah. There's a danger in letting any other human being do your thinking for you, including me. I've told you, never let me think for you. My goal is to challenge you to think. I'm not here to tell you what to think. All right, Thursday's lesson, 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10. Paul notes that the Thessalonians had become known in the region by, what, by, by the way they were living. Question to you guys, what do you think changed that caused others to take note in the region? Others in the region took note. What changed? Behavior. Could you throw out any possibilities of specifics? Well, their sexual lifestyle. Okay, they stopped visiting the cult prostitutes. Hadn't seen you in a while. You've seen them down at the market, you see the cult prostitute. Hey, Joe, hadn't seen you in a while. Well, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't believe in that God anymore. Gave up, gave up idols, she said. How about, was there works of charity going on? Helping people. Seems like there was, as I read it. And in verse 10, if you see the close of chapter 1, Paul says that Christ is coming back to save us from the coming wrath, or the wrath to come. (laughs) What do you all think that means? Save us from the wrath to come. How do you understand it? I'm going to tell you, which lens are you using? Are you using imposed law? God is like a Roman emperor. He puts laws upon his creatures and we must obey or else like an emperor, he must impose penalties. God is the creator who built his universe to run on certain unalterable principles. And when you violate those, step out of those, terrible destructive consequences happen. Depends on which lens you use. Save us from the wrath to come. Uh, This is a a book by a guy named, uh, a group of of people, it's kind of like a, a Bible dictionary called Hard Sayings of the Bible by Kaiser, printed by InterVarsity Press, 1996. And talking about the wrath of God as described in Romans 1, 18 through 32, this is what they say. I found it amazing uh, that, they, that they, they came to these conclusions. The human condition, which Paul describes in Romans 1, 18 through 32, is not something got, caused by God. The phrase revealed from heaven, where heaven is a typical Jewish substitute for the God, does not depict some kind of divine intervention, but rather the inevitability of human debasement, which results when God's will, built into the created order, is violated. Since the created order has its origin in God, Paul can say that the wrath of God is now constantly being revealed from heaven. It is revealed in in the fact that the rejection of God's truth, that is, the truth about God's nature and will, leads to futile thinking, idolatry, perversion of God-intended sexuality, and uh, relational moral brokenness. The expression, God gave them over, or handed them over, which appears three times in verses 24, 26, and 28, supports the idea that the sinful perversion of human existence, though resulting from human decisions, uh, is to be understood ultimately as God's punishment, which we, in freedom, 
bring upon ourselves. In light of these reflections, the common notion that God punishes or blesses in direct proportion to our sinful or good deeds cannot be maintained. God's, God loves us with an everlasting love, but the rejection of that love separates us from its life-giving power. The result is disintegration and death. Is that awesome? And it's the absolute truth. And Ellen, Ellen Wright wrote in, in, in first... Pardon? Is that inspired? Is that inspired? Yes, absolutely it is. All, all, to, the, to the degree, the Bible says spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Without the Holy Spirit, no human mind can understand any truth. So to the degree an individual speaks truth, it's been, been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Now whether they have some status as prophet or apostle, we don't care. The point is truth is, the source of truth is through the Holy Spirit. So it's inspired, Yes. Ellen White said in uh, First Selected Messages, page 235, and she wrote this letter to Uriah Smith in the 1890s when he was editor of the, um, of the signs. He didn't know what to do, or is it the review? The review? Yeah, when he was editor of the review. And he didn't know what to do with it, so he filed it where it was not discovered until 1950s. And in the 1950s, it was put in the Selected Messages, page 235. We are not to regard the sinner, um, we are not to discard the sinner as bringing punishment upon himself. Every sin, excuse me, we're not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner. Every sinner um, brings the punishment. Out. How's this go? I'm really forgetting it, guys. Normally I remember these things, but my didn't get enough sleep last night, I guess. Um, we're not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. Um, every sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Um, every act of sin reacts against the sinner, making it easier for him to sin again, uh, and it separates them from um, the blessings and love of God, and the sure result is ruin and death. That's exactly what they said here. Exactly they say the principles are the same. Do you see a distortion that comes into our relationship when we believe God is a great policeman in the sky, following us around with a, with a whip waiting, waiting to punish us for our mistakes? You know, I like the better metaphor of uh, Lance Armstrong where he had a car following him everywhere he went. So f- for the moment he got a flat or fell, they were there to pick him up, patch him up, and put him back on the road. God's following us everywhere to pick us up, patch us up, and put us back on the road. Tuesday's lesson, we'll jump back to Tuesday now, asked, how do we gain assurance that we are right with God? How do we gain assurance that we are right with God? Any thoughts about this question? She says, understand his character. Understand his character. Well, the question, I guess, what makes us right with God? Being in harmony with him. You know, you said understand his character. thought popped into my mind. I think it's desire of ages. I think it's about page 461, but I'm not sure where she said um, about in heaven, Lucifer had, uh, man stood in a different position than that of Lucifer in heaven. To him as to no other created being was given a revelation of God's character, understanding his goodness, understanding his love. Lucifer chose to rebel. There was no other 
um, option for him. But man was in a different position than that of Lucifer. Man, uh, you know, sinned, was deceived by Satan, by, by the devil's sophistry. And therefore there was hope for man in a revelation of God's character of love. You remember the statement? Yeah. So we have hope that he didn't. Why? We've been deceived. He sinned in the full light and knowledge of God's character. And there was no more revelation of truth, evidently, of the knowledge of God's kingdom, his principles, his methods of love. There was no more that could be revealed that would win him because he's already rejected the truth. Yes? I feel like when I read the Bible, sometimes I, I see through a black curtain some, a little bit of light filtering through uh, that has to do with the character of God. Uh, there's probably two places in my Bible that I've written in there. Lord, I don't love like this. You know, I don't feel like we in our, in our state where we are are ever going to be sinless because we're never going to fully see the character of God until we actually spend time with him, you know, to, on a person-to-person level. I mean, Wait, harmony is forgiveness. What do you do with the scripture that says, when he comes, we shall see him face-to-face, for we shall be like him? I'll be like him, but not him. When he comes, we shall see him face to face, for we shall be like him. Not totally like, I don't believe. I just, I just don't believe I'm ever going to fully realize the love of God because I just don't have it in my realm of thinking. I have no idea the magnitude of love that he has. Uh, other thoughts, yes. Uh, reread the, the book, The Hiding Place, um, by Corey Ten Boom. And I don't know if any of you have read it, but... Uh, her sister in there exemplifies the attitude of Christ in that even in the middle of the concentration camp she was praying for and planning for the redemption of the people who were harming her if that's not Christ-like yeah I think it's well said Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 describes the people who are ready for translation not those who are now glorified but those who are ready to be glorified and it uses those these words these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death that drive to survive that need to protect self has been changed and the law of love the new covenant experience i'll write my law upon your hearts and minds uh, has been experienced such that they love God and love others more than they love self. That is the transforming process that you I th- describe, I think, in the book Corey Ten Boone's sister had, that the two little girls that I described earlier had that experience. That's what God is trying to bring us all to. And our natural instinct is so deeply ingrained that it is, it is almost repulsive at times to think about that kind of regard for other people. It's, it's so wired into us to save ourselves that, that it seems so unnatural to give our life for somebody else. And the only thing that makes it natural is to reconnect to the source of love and the source of life, to reconnect to God and his design. And he says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. And when you love somebody, think about the people you love most in the world. You could give your life for them. Only love can cast out all fear, which gives us the capacity to give our life for others. And so that transforming experience of heart is to happen before Christ comes. However, that doesn't mean we're free of temptation before Christ comes. Yes. Yeah. I think the important thing to remember when you're saying that text is just keep coming back to, it's not just talking about our physical life. Our, no, of course. Yeah. You know, it, all aspects of our life. Are we willing to give up what's important to us, what makes us 
You mean like money, time, energy, all of that, food, clothing? It's not just willing to die physically for somebody else, but willing to die in all aspects of our life. Russell. Uh, I want to get back to the lesson's question about how can we be assured of, of our salvation. I mean, I think that's basically what it's asking. Yes. Isn't there a danger in, in focusing only on, on ourselves and, and whether or not we're going to be in heaven and whether or not we're going to live forever? Shouldn't we... Should be, be we be revealing? We be, should be more concerned about others' salvation. We should be more concerned about our enemies' salvation. Can you say, in sincerity to the Lord, Lord, you know my heart, as Peter finally said, Lord, you know my heart. Remember, after the three questions, do you love me? You know, Lord, you know my heart. And if you know that heaven would be a worse off place for me there, don't bring me. Can you say that? If you can say that, then you're probably a saint. <laughs> well, when I, when I finally got to the point that I've said that to him, my fears and worries about my eternal salvation went away. I don't worry about it anymore. Yeah. I trust him with it. If it would be a better place without me there, I don't want to be there. And I'll trust him with that decision. So I don't worry about my eternal salvation anymore. Yes? Yeah, this question, and what Russell was saying, is that I want to bring up, it, how much assurance of salvation do you have? It's not an issue of assurance of salvation. It's assurance of who God is. Well, uh, the, the, the question is asking us our assurance that we're right with God. Now, that could be different than just salvation. It could be, are we on right target? Are we on right object? Are we on right motive? Are we on right mission? Are we doing the right by God? Are we representing him rightly? I mean, it could mean more than just our personal salvation if we're right with God. And, and I would say the two things that I understand make us wrong with God are our the false and distorted ideas that we hold about him, that we don't really know him, and our own natures that drive us to act selfishly rather than the, the nature of God, which is selfless love. So we have two, two primary obstacles to being right with God. One, not knowing him, as was said earlier, okay? not knowing him both factually and objectively, and then subjectively not knowing him in our hearts and experiencing him. And to experience and know him, then we experience trust. And if you think about how Adam and Eve went from a loving trust relation with God to their fallen state, what, what was it that brought that about? Fear. It wasn't fear. Fear was a consequence. Distrust. Distrust based on lies. lies. So lies believed broke the circle of love and trust. So what is it that restores the circle of love and trust? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth destroys lies. So if you believe a lie about your spouse, that they're having an affair, but they're not, the only thing that's going to help you be reconciled is the truth that they're still loyal and faithful. You've got to have the truth come in to destroy the lie that you hold. As long as you hold the lie that they're cheating, you really won't trust them. So the truth has to come in to destroy the lie. But we have something else now. Not only do we have this distrust because we have been told many, many, many lies about God, we also have a nature that's oriented towards survival and selfishness and fear. So once we're restored to trust, we also need healing of our nature. Christ came to achieve both of those for us. He came to reveal truth, to destroy lies, to win us to trust, and he came to develop a new humanity, to heal humanity that he offers to us. And he did that for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. 
And those who accept Christ, then the Holy Spirit says, takes all that Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature. The law is written on the heart and mind. The heart is circumcised by the Spirit. I mean, every metaphor of Scripture is a supernatural, transforming, reorienting of the neural net so that, and I'll give you an example, Paul, Saul, Tarsus, acted on self-motivation, willing to hurt other people, exploit, stone, abuse, in prison. Paul... Different neural circuits, I'm going to tell you, were firing in Paul's brain. Paul would give himself in love for others. He had a transforming experience that went beyond just a construct. It went to a a motivation of heart, which went to a different part of his brain was becoming active. Yes? I don't know. I'm going to just throw it out here because it's the way I believe. I believe he always followed God as much as he saw the light. And I think he was converted, he was transformed, but before that he did not know of his condition. He still thought he was following God. Okay. And I have patients who think that cigarette smoking is healthy. Doesn't make it healthy. So he might have thought he was following God, doesn't mean he was. Sincerity on the wrong road doesn't bring you to the right location. So if you were in Waco following the Branch Davidians because, or in Jonestown drinking the, drinking the Kool-Aid, um, Jim Jones and, and David Korash, who really were sincerely trying to do what they thought was right for God, um, you really think they're going to be on the Lord's side? Do you think they're all going to be lost? Uh, I think those who have chosen to reject the truth and embrace the darkness, yes. You can't, if your heart has not been changed to have the law of love put in there, there's nothing he can do. It's like saying this. We've all got plastic bags tied over our head and we're out of harmony with the law of respiration. Now, some people believe that you don't need to take the plastic bag off to live. They can just live by osmosis through your skin and get oxygen that way. And they teach people, leave the plastic bag on your head because you can live with just getting oxygen through your skin. Others say, no, you've got to have the bag taken off be put back in harmony with the way God built life to run. Well, those are sincere, but they're not going to live because that's not how God built life to run. You have to come back into the actual harmony of God's construction protocols for this universe, which is the law of love, his nature, his character. This is the center-orienting piece. And those who teach a gospel of selfishness and self-centeredness, no matter how sincere they are, will not be saved. This is my understanding. Do you agree or disagree? The Pharisees believed that they were doing what was right. Um, they were righteous in their own eyes, and they killed God. Right. Yeah, there's a good example. And we are told that I'll give you people who kill God's people will believe they're doing it in God's name. Christ said that. They will persecute you believing they're doing it for me. You're believing the Pharisees believed in their heart they were doing right? Some of them did, yes. I would, I, I would say a few. Yeah. But to make a statement to give the impression that the Pharisees believed what they were doing was right is not to be... That, that should not be... Right, not all of them did. You're right. But let me, let me just use an example of Peter. Peter in the upper room. Everyone denies you. I won't, Lord. I'll be there for you. Sincerely meant it. And Jesus said, when you're converted, feed my sheep. Peter's not yet converted. What's it mean? What happened then? He sincerely means it. He's not lying. He wants to be there for the Lord. Next day, he denies him. Why? Did Peter love Jesus? Yes. But he still loved himself more. And as long as he still loved himself more than Jesus, when push came to the shove, he would throw Jesus under the bus to protect himself. Peter was not yet saved. 
It was only after that experience where we went out and wept bitterly, died to self, and had the law written in the heart and mind. That's when Peter had a transforming experience, and now he is right with the Lord. He was not yet right, then he was right. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such lengths to reach us with the truth about your character and kingdom, reach us with your grace and goodness. And we know one thing for sure, that you want all men to come to salvation, that you want to save every one of us, and that if any one of us is lost, it's not because of any deficiency, energy, work, approach that on your part, but it's on a persistent refusal on our part. We pray that you will transform us, let us know you more effective, uh, more fully, that we can be more effective in sharing the truth about your kingdom with others, because we do want you to come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.